Let me ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. What is the fall? The fall is one of the most consequential acts in all history. It actually showed for the first time that man could not be trusted to make the right decision in respect to God, his own welfare, or the welfare of others. In one moment, the conditional righteousness that man had in the Garden of Eden came to an ignominious end. That was the fall. Father, I pray now that you would guide us and direct us throughout this study of your word. Use it, I pray, to the utmost of your own honor and praise and glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. This is not the only place where God recorded the fall, but it is certainly one of the most detailed places about the fall. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now it's interesting as you read that very first verse, there are two things that just come out and punch me right in the eye. The first of those is uh, that word subtle. The Bible never speaks about someone being subtle as a good thing. Wise sometimes is spoken of as good and sometimes as evil, but subtle is never spoken of as a good thing. The serpent was subtle. He knew how to use his subtlety to his advantage. It demonstrates the basic idea that the devil knows how to trick us. And he chose the most, the easiest person to trick, which was the woman, not the man. He went directly after the woman and he tried to trick her. He was subtle. He began his sentence with the second word that hits me right in the eye, the word yea. It means the Hebrew word there that's translated yea, which yea just means like yes. But um, this word means furthermore, okay? And furthermore. Well, that was aimed at making the woman feel uncertain about what he had said. Because nobody begins a conversation by saying, and furthermore, when you've not said anything before that. This left the woman feeling like, uh, what did I miss? What did the devil already say that I didn't understand? It makes her want to pay attention. She would have felt like, I must not have been paying attention. Was I asleep or what happened? That the devil's been talking and he says, and furthermore, and I never knew that there was any more before the furthermore. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now the devil asked her, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now do you realize this is a twisting of the sentence? It's putting an extra negative in there that doesn't belong. If the devil had asked the right question, it would have been, did God say you can eat of every tree in the garden? To which she would have replied, well, every tree except one. But instead, he throws in a not. It's again put there, and it's only one little syllable in Hebrew. He throws in a not 
to make her feel like, uh, how do you answer this? I had to take a driving test in Paraguay. And I went in there and I looked at the test. It is not illegal to not drive with your lights turned off at night. Well, it is illegal to drive. It's not illegal to not drive. Yeah, if you're not driving, by the time you figure out the sentence with all the knots in it, your time's up. So I said to the guy, excuse me, I'm really ignorant. Can you translate this into Guarani? And the guy said, oh, you speak Guarani? And I said, yes. So he translated it into perfect Guarani, and I still didn't understand if it's yes or no. I had to answer yes or no. So I started to put the pen down on one of the answers, and he goes... <laughs> so I moved the pen over to the other answer, and he goes... <laughs> So I marked it. After I was done with the test, and he did that on every question, e Elaine was furious because he didn't do that for her. <laughs> but she passed it anyway because she's smarter than I am. After I was done with the test, he congratulated me and told me I got 100. <laughs> well, even here in California, by the way, I've had that kind of luck. So it's not just in Paraguay. But double negatives, triple negatives. The devil says, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden. Why did he have to throw a knot in there? Not because he was subtle. He was trying to trick her. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, verse 3 says, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it. That's the one that God said no to. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Again, he throws a knot in there where it doesn't belong. Now she's already confused several times over now. And the devil says, ye shall not surely die. Well, God said, ye shall surely die. Which one am I going to believe? Well, I've had people tell me, what's wrong with listening to the devil? After all, 90% of what he says is true. Yeah, but do you realize that one word not, which was, again, just a syllable in Hebrew that made it negative. That's all it did. But that one syllable, even if it were 10%, made it 100% a lot. You can tell 90% of the truth, but by making 10% an error, it is no longer truth. For God doth know that the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You realize that was the devil's desire? He wanted to be like God. And so he wants to infect humanity with the same thing. You can know more. You know, God, God left you naked and barefoot and in the kitchen and pregnant. That's the message that the devil was giving to the woman. You don't know what you really could know. Why, you could know good and evil and God only told you good he never told you the evil part don't you want to know more she was already the smartest woman in history but she wasn't satisfied with that the devil planted within her the idea that she could know more than God ever intended for her to know what he didn't tell her was what knowing more would be yeah she didn't know what it meant to suffer pain to grow old and die she didn't know what pain it would be to stand over Abel's dead body after Cain killed him. She had no idea 
what this evil part would be. But it was intriguing. So verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise... She took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? You don't think God already knew the answer to that? Why would he bother asking? Because he wants man to confess what he's done. Take the responsibility for what he's done. Yes, Lord, I sinned. I disobeyed you. I didn't do what you clearly told me to do. I did do what you clearly told me not to do. I did the wrong thing. But instead, the simple question of did you eat, which is a yes, I did eat, yes, is the answer. And the man said, the woman that thou gavest me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now, Adam very quickly learned something that every one of us also learned without ever being told. Nobody had to teach us how to blame somebody else. Adam very naturally knew how to blame God for his problem. Well, I hear till today people saying, well, why did God make me with free will if he didn't expect me to use it? And it's not my fault. It's Adam's fault. He's the one that sinned in the Garden of Eden. If I had been made perfect like he was, I would have never sinned. We've learned very well how to blame somebody else. And chief with Adam was to blame his wife after God. The woman that thou gavest me. It's God's fault. She ge he gave me the woman. But then it's God's fault. Also, It's also Eve's fault because she prepared the meal and gave me the food. And I just ate what she put in front of me. But God doesn't accept that excuse. But he doesn't say anything to Adam at that point. He goes on to Eve. And the Lord God said unto the woman, verse 13, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. It's all the devil's fault. Now, folks, we blame God, we blame each other, and we blame the devil for everything that we do. And I say the poor devil, he had nobody to blame. The blame fell on him, and he couldn't turn around and say, well, it's, it's somebody else's fault. There wasn't anybody else. But the devil may not have had anybody to blame, but he also had exactly what he wanted. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go. 
and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, let me just correct a couple of things in this verse, I want you to understand what God actually says. When he says, thy desire shall be to thy husband, that follows in sorrow or in pain, literally. Thou shalt bring forth children, something that God had intended originally to be painless for the woman was now going to be painful. And he followed it by saying, that the woman's desire would be that her husband suffer that pain. Even jokes that women tell amongst themselves, like if men had to suffer birth pangs, the human race would become extinct. Okay? Demonstrates how true this is even until today. But it goes on further than that. It says, and he shall rule over thee. That word rule there, mashal in Hebrew, is the same word that was used in Genesis chapter 1 where it says, and the sun shall rule over the day and the moon shall rule over the night. Mashal doesn't mean rule. How does the sun rule over the day? The word actually means bless. The sun will be the blessing during the day, and the moon will be the blessing during the night. And though your desire, woman, is that your husband suffer the birth pangs, yet he will be the blessing to you. Literally. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and unto his wife, did the Lord God make coats of, of skins and clothe them. No more an apron of fig leaves. Not even an apron of animal skins. Now, it was going to be a coat. It was going to cover them entirely. And the Lord God said, the man has become as one of us. Yes. Now, we know the evil that our actions bring into the world. Adam and Eve could have never imagined that someday their offspring, Mike McCubbins, would be seated here because it just hurts me way too much to stand up. They could have never imagined how this whole world would have devolved into what it is today. But there came a moment 
when they found out. They could have never foreseen that the world would be filled with so much evil because they were not yet woke, but very soon they were woke. Their eyes were opened, the Bible says here in Genesis 3, verse 7. They were now woke. They knew exactly the guilt of personal sin. No one any longer had to describe it to them. They lived it. And nobody has to describe to me or to you how terrible consequences are for personal sin. Amen? We all know it. We don't like it any better than Adam and Eve liked it. But there was pain. In sorrow thou shalt till the ground. And that word sorrow there, in pain, there's pain involved. There is pain in giving birth to a child. There's pain in raising a child. No mother or father has ever lived who doesn't know the pain that he feels when his child doesn't do what God says. Enough pain that can leave you awake at night and sleep is far from you. There's pain. And the solution isn't to just close your eyes and say, it'll all go away. It doesn't go away. Yes, in the biblical sense, I'm woke, but not like the world talks about being woke today. They're using it when they're really announcing their own blindness and nakedness. Adam and Eve were victims of their own sinful act. There really was no one else to blame for it, even though they tried to blame someone else. And in today's world, folks, being woke is being able to blame somebody else. I'm the way that I am because my parents, because the color of my skin. Let me tell you something. You had nothing to do with choosing the color of your skin and neither did I. Amen. I used to have people say to me, aren't you sorry that you're Jewish? No, I'm not sorry that I'm Jewish. It just happens to be what my parents were. And I'm never going to apologize for what my parents were. I thank God for my parents. And if I had been born some other thing other than Jewish, I would be glad still for whatever my parents gave me. Oh, I know that's not the way we're supposed to act today. But I opened my eyes and saw how good God had been to me. And my friends who had no parents didn't fare very well in life. I thank God that I had two parents. And I thank God that they loved me. How about you? You thankful for a mom or a dad who loved you? Adam and Eve were not victims of someone else. They were violators of their conscience, victims of their own choosing. Let me ask you to turn over to Judges, chapter 17. I had a pastor write an article that was sent to me 
where he said, uh, you know what, uh, we shouldn't talk about politics. Well, it's not God who's restricting churches and persecuting them. It's politics. It's politicians. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about what politicians are doing. It's not God who's aborting babies. It's politicians who are allowing this. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about it because that's evil according to my Bible. How about yours? He said, well, we can't criticize government. Who is the government? I happen to have read the Constitution, and I understand that what we are is a republic where we govern ourselves. You are the government. And some elected official cannot get by with doing things that strip you of your liberties unless you willingly give them up. Do you understand me on that? If we're going to govern ourselves, then we have to do what was understood in the book of Judges, that we allow God to tell us what we're supposed to do. Amen? We're not capable of governing ourselves according to our own ideas. We've got to govern ourselves according to what God says. And in fact, the framers of our Constitution put it into writing that they said that the only kind of people that were capable of governing themselves were a righteous people that followed God. Folks, we've forgotten to do that. Because God never led us into abortion and all the different problems that we have today. In the book of Judges, God was supposed to be their king. The judge was only supposed to help them understand what God was telling them to do. But the Bible says here in Judges 17 verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. God was no longer king. But every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now you tell me whether God is our king, or is it that every man does that which is right in his own eyes anymore? Judges 18.1. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of Danites sought them an inheritance to dwell in, for unto that day all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. So they went off and did their own thing. Judges 19.1 And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite sojourning in the side of Mount Ephraim who took to, to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. Everybody did whatever they felt like. There was no king. No one was obeying God. Everybody just did whatever they felt like. And so all you had was mayhem. Folks, when we decide to disobey God, that's exactly the condition that we fall into. There are many ways to fall, but there's only one way to get back. You can fall a lot of different ways. At my age, when I got new glasses, I'd stumble over the step. The Bible talks about it as a stumbling stone. 
took me a while to get my eyes adjusted to my new glasses and be able to judge the distance properly. I can stumble getting in and out of the bathtub. I can stumble spiritually too when I forget to ask God what I'm supposed to be doing. Many people tell me that they don't feel that Adam and Eve really did that big of a sin to deserve everything they got. Oh, really? Well, who left you to judge? There was only one thing, one thing that God told them not to do. Just one thing. And a perfect man showed that he couldn't be trusted to just follow simple directions. Who do you think you are? You're not a perfect man. Better beware of what God has told you to do. You can fall from grace. You know, I hear a lot of people, you know, so-and-so fell from grace. You'll hear it on TV about some athlete who got caught taking drugs or whatever, and he fell from grace. No, that's not falling from grace. Let me refer you to the passage, only one passage in the whole Bible that talks about falling from grace. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law. You want to be justified by keeping the law? Well, I keep the law. I've kept the Ten Commandments. I've had people tell me, you know, I'll say to them, do you know what? You're on your way to heaven. Well, I think so. I've never killed anybody. Uh, How about the other nine commandments? Can you tell me what they are? You're going to get to heaven by keeping the commandments. Which commandments? 631 commandments. That's almost enough for two for every day of the year. Do you realize that? And... You're going to get to heaven that way? Paul says, whoever wants to be justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Yeah, falling from grace doesn't mean losing your salvation, and it doesn't mean being in uh, disgrace. What it means is that you are now not on the level of the grace of God saving you, but on the law of God saving you. You fall from grace to a lower level, which is the law. And there is no salvation in the law. Folks, what we need is what Adam and Eve needed. We need restoration and redemption not reformation and rehabilitation. I'm going to repeat that in case you wanted to write it down. What we need is restoration and redemption, not reformation and rehabilitation. Our entire prison system is built on reformation and rehabilitation. That's what's wrong with it. 
What people need is restoration to a right relationship with God and redemption, not rehabilitation. We're not in the business as a church of rehabilitating. We're in the job of redemption and restoration. First Kings chapter 13, verses 3 to 10. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, which he had put forth against him, dried up, so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar also was rent and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, and became as it was before. You know, Jeroboam's biggest problem was not his hand. It was his heart. He was worried about his hand. His hand got stuck, and he couldn't bring it back in. His his arm acted like it had polio. It was stuck permanently there and dried up. And he says, restore my hand. Do you know something? If he had said, restore my heart, I think God would have restored his hand too need a new heart. Instead, he was the same idolater, same murderer, same criminal that he had been before, but now he had two good hands again. I much feel like Psalm 23 should have been his plea. Do you know this entire psalm by memory? Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Ah, How does God restore my soul? It takes the work of Jesus Christ. What was the matter with David's soul that he needed to be restored? Well, he follows it by saying, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God can restore your soul. He's the only one that can do it. I would recommend today that at the end, you take some time and read Psalm 51, verses 1 through 17, where Paul, where David talks about having his soul restored. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Restore my soul. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear 
when thou judgest. Yeah, David knew what sin was like. And he didn't blame anybody else. He says, I only. He didn't say, well, it was really Bathsheba's fault. Now, I only. He didn't say it was my soldiers' fault. They're the ones that went and brought Bathsheba to me. They should not have obeyed me when I told them to go get that woman and bring her here. They should have said, no, David, we're not going to. No, he didn't blame his soldiers. He didn't blame his multitude of wives. He didn't blame Bathsheba. He blamed himself. He says, I only. Now I need for you to restore my soul. I'm the one that sinned. And I'm man enough to take the responsibility for what I've done. I'm not blaming anybody else. That is what we're lacking today. Every one of us finds ourselves living in a culture that today wants to blame everybody else, our forefathers and our leaders. Everybody is to blame, but we ourselves. Redemption needs God to act. We need God to work. Yeah, Abraham was told, take your son, Genesis 22, thine only son, Isaac. You ever really want to know how God felt? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. I want you, Abraham, to take the son, Isaac, your only son, and I want you to go up a mountain, and that mountain was where Christ was crucified later. And I want you to sacrifice that son, your only son, and as Abraham goes up that mountain in Genesis 22, verse 7, it says, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. It doesn't say God will provide the burnt offering. It says God will provide himself burnt offering. This was a matter of life and death for Isaac. Isaac was tied up and laid on that pile of wood. Abraham had the, the fire in his hand and the knife in his hand. And he was about ready to plunge it into Isaac's chest and sacrifice him because God had told him, your son, your only son. But it was God who provided himself, his son, his only son, to be the sacrifice in our place. Redemption needs God to act. And our country is bent on changing things, reforming things, rehabilitating things. But there has to come a time when we say, no, we need God's redemption today. We need God to act and to restore our soul, to bring about the change, the kind of change that Abraham saw when God said, I will provide a sacrifice. Folks, we're in desperate needs. And unless we as a church get our eyes back on the God of heaven and say, Lord, restore my soul. Let revival begin with me. I desperately want to serve you. I'm not looking at blaming someone else. Use me to change the course of history. Father, I pray now that you would use your words so very deeply in each and every heart and life. Challenge us, Lord 
to really come to grips with a fall. And the only solution is that which we find in you and your sacrifice of your son on Calvary. And we'll thank you and praise you for what you're going to do now. In Jesus' name, amen.